Each of us has a desire to measure up to the expectations of others. The intensity of that desire varies among us, undoubtedly, but we are all motivated to meet the basic expectations of our culture, our family, our peers, our associates. We care what other people think. We want them to think well of us, which is one reason that we all defend our actions from time to time. We argue in our own defense so that others will continue to approve of us. This is why we all do things every day to achieve the approval of others. That might be why you took a shower this morning. You want others to approve of you, why you brushed your teeth. It might be why you paint your house and why you mow your lawn. There might not be any other reason for it than that. We pay our taxes so that the government continues to approve of us and not begin to disapprove. All kinds of things that we do to gain the approval of other people. But you know this natural desire, this desire to measure up, does not stop at the approval of people. There is within each of us some desire to gain the approval of God. In so many words, I've asked many people over the years this basic question, do you have God's approval? Does God approve of you? Only a very small minority have said to me, you know what, in basic terms, you know what, I really don't care if God approves of me or not. I've gotten that response, but that's been very rare. There's a very small minority as well that have said to me, I know that I do not have God's approval. I realize that. The vast majority of people that I've asked that question to, or, or in some similar words, have said to me, yes, I believe that God approves of my life. There's some sense that they want to measure up and believe that they do. And some usually argue along the lines of, I'm really not that bad of a person. I realize God does not approve of bad people, just like the government around us does not approve of people who take someone's life, or who cheat on their taxes, or who commit some crime. The government doesn't approve of them, and we have this sense that that is a reflection of the fact that God does not approve of bad people, but I'm not a bad person. And the argument continues. The defensiveness is there, that in some way I stand approved before God. Now others add to that discussion, it's not just that I'm not a bad person, but you need to know what I've done. I've done some good things in my life. I've gone to church. I part of a Christian home. I have done this and I have done that. I, I pray to God. I know that I have his approval on the basis of what I have done. I mow my lawn to keep the neighbors happy, and I go to church to keep God happy, and I'm sure he approves. I wonder this morning how you would answer that question. Do you have God's approval? When you think of God and his presence in this world, does he look down upon you and say, I approve? Are you sure that you measure up to his standards? I'd like you to hold that question in your mind as we go together today 
to a book written by a man named Saul of Tarsus. That's the name that, as he was born, that was his name. He became Paul later, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But I'd like you to keep that thought in mind. Do I have the approval of God? We sang a song this morning, Amazing Grace, and it was written by a man who speaks of many dangers and toils and snares and speaks of himself as a wretch. He went through many hard times. But the grace of God came into his life and changed John Newton. We talk today now, and I'd like to take us here in a few moments, to consider this man, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew born in the cosmopolitan Roman city of Tarsus, and to consider that he too has an amazing story of the grace of God. Let's think of his story because it is worthy of our consideration in light of this question of whether or not we have the approval of God. Saul was a brilliant young man. He was a passionate man as well. I think anything that Paul put his hand to would have succeeded. He had a wealthy father in Tarsus who sent his son to Jerusalem to study the Hebrew Scriptures. If you were a Jew and you had a bright young man as your son, that would be one of the first things that you would think of doing, to send him to Jerusalem where he could learn from the great rabbis. Saul of Tarsus was so sharp, so capable, that he was able to study as a disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel was among the top of the Jewish rabbis, and he took Paul as his disciple. This Saul rose quickly to a place of prominence within the establishment of Israel. His religious zeal and his deep devotion to God were widely recognized. But in Jerusalem at, that, at this time, there was this strange group of people known as Christians. It was a small Jewish sect, as far as anybody could understand. But the Jews in particular were upset with these people. They were an annoyance. And in Saul's mind, these Christians were attacking the truth of God's law, the law that he was studying, the law that he had come to embrace, the law that he lived and breathed every day. These Christians were attacking that law. And they were saying that one Jesus Christ was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. But Paul knew, Saul knew that that Jesus had died on a cross, and anybody who died on a cross, anyone who was impaled, was under the curse of God according to the law. So he knew that these people were attacking the true faith. He was filled with jealous passion for the honor of God, so filled was he with concern to protect the reputation of God that Saul of Tarsus obtained letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to the city of Damascus, about 135 miles to the north, modern-day Syria, to take a trip up there to the north because he had heard there were some Christians there. He wanted to incarcerate them, to bring them back, and to bring them to prosecution under the law of God. This is one zealous man. No one asked him to do this, apparently. This was his idea to stamp out falsehood wherever he could. So he made that journey, traveling just shy of the city of Damascus, when he was confronted by a vision of Jesus Christ. Pastor Pratt read that passage earlier in Acts chapter 9. And on that spot, as we read earlier, the radical rabbi who breathed out murderous threats against Christians became one. Now, it is hard for us to imagine the transformation. 
Saul of Tarsus was a rising star in Judaism. He had an impeccable religious pedigree. He was radical in his pursuit of God's approval, and he had assembled a spiritual portfolio that was the envy of his nation. But in a moment of time, Saul embraced the way of Jesus of Nazareth, who from everybody's estimation in Israel had been cursed by God. I don't know how to liken it to something in our day. I suppose it would be if they found Osama bin Laden and found him with a Bible in his hand, teaching the truths of Christianity. We'd be somewhat shocked about that. And I'll tell you, the shock that reverberated through Jerusalem was really no different when they found out that Saul of Tarsus, this rising star, this student of the law, this zealous, passionate rabbi was now teaching Christianity. Imagine. Connected, wealthy, established, rising up, and now he's embraced this cursed way of Christ. So radical was the transformation that Saul took on another name, Paul. And if you'll remember that, if you're not familiar with his story, I'll refer to him as Saul, and already have, as Saul and Paul. But Paul is his Christian name, the name that showed that he had come to Christ as Savior, and he was no longer Saul of Tarsus in a real sense. But this same Paul now faithfully spread the message of Jesus. He had once tried to squelch this message, and now he was spreading it to the degree that he had been imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Christ, for speaking about Jesus. He was in prison around 62 AD when he writes a letter to various Christians in the city of Philippi. And there is a passage in the letter that he writes that directly addresses this issue of measuring up to God. Paul knows a few things about that. He's lived his whole life as a religious zealot. And he's going to talk to us in this letter about how to measure up to God. If that's of any concern to you at all, you should listen to the words of Paul. I invite you to the book of Philippians. If you have someone near you that can share a Bible with you, or if you've brought your own, Philippians chapter 3. Now, in this passage, Philippians chapter 3... Paul begins to tackle this issue of how we gain God's approval. And he speaks of those who put confidence in the flesh. Now when he says putting confidence in the flesh, he means those who are pursuing religious credentials before God. They're doing things to gain God's approval. He used to think that it was through putting confidence in the flesh that you gain God's approval, but he doesn't think that anymore. He met Jesus Christ. And he now pours out his heart, insisting that there is another and a superior way. First, Paul starts by assuring us that he is no stranger to pursuing the approval of God through human effort and qualification. We know that in what we've studied already about his life. He starts by saying the pursuit of God's approval through human effort and credential is something that I've gone through. We pick up there at verse 4. I myself have reason to have for such confidence, that is, confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What's he saying? Listen, I'll match my religious pedigree against anybody's. 
Here's my defense, and it's a very strong defense. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Now let's take that list and break it down just a little bit for Western minds. I was circumcised of the people of Israel. Of all the peoples on earth, God selected the family of Abraham to represent him on earth to all other nations. And speaking to Abraham, God even said, through you I will bless all peoples on earth. So this unique family, Saul is born into that family, and he is circumcised on the eighth day, which was the sign that he belonged to those people. Now think of it. All nations on earth, this one small nation, God chooses to bless all people through them, to use them as a symbol of how he works with people, and Saul is one of them. Circumcised in strict accordance with the law. He is a child, a son of the covenant between God and Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Only two of those tribes stayed loyal to the messianic line of David and his, of King David and his line. And only two, Benjamin and Judah, came back to Palestine from captivity in Babylon. I'm one of those, he says. And I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What does he mean there? Probably saying simply that he was born to Hebrew parents. He wasn't a proselyte. He didn't become an Israelite. He didn't see God's promise to Abraham and say, you know what, I wish I had been part of that. In fact, I think I'll become a Jew. He was born among the Hebrew nation, as one of the Hebrew nation. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It probably also refers to the fact that his study of Scripture and, and really his study of the whole Hebraic way of life was a dominating force for him. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Through and through he was part of the covenant people. He was a Pharisee. That's a sect in Israel. we become uh, familiar with various sects of Islam here in recent years. There's the Sunni sect and the Shia sect. And so within Israel at this time, there were various sects of Israelites. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. Now, what does that mean? It might not mean much to you, but a Pharisee is a way of saying, I'm one of the real serious kind. The Pharisees were, they really amazed people with their attention to the law of God. Their whole life, everything that they did was oriented toward the law of God. There's an awful lot of rules in God's law. And when it came to the Pharisees' interpretation of those laws, they added even more on top. And Saul of Tarsus could raise his hand and say, I'm one of those. I live my life in accordance with the law of God every day of my life. The scribes decided what the law meant, the Pharisees lived it out, and the people oohed and awed. How could they live so righteously? I'm one of those. I was one of those, says Saul, says Paul here. Verse 6, he speaks of his zeal. A zeal that led him to persecute the church. Now that doesn't strike us as particularly righteous, does it? But let's think of that from Saul's angle. He believes that Christianity is an attack on the true faith. And he is so zealous for the true faith that he's willing to do something about it. He believed the Christians were dishonoring God, and he would have none of that. 
He was wholly dedicated to fighting for God's honor. And as far as legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. The original language in which this text was written might be better translated with respect to the righteousness in the law without blame. There's a righteousness that comes from obeying God. In accordance with that righteousness, Saul says, I was faultless. As I said, the rules and regulations of the law of God were many and complicated. And the interpretation that the Pharisees attached were even more complicated. But Saul had done everything humanly conceivable to measure up to God's standard. He is blameless in his actions. So how do we often seek to measure up to God? We compare ourselves with our neighbor. We compare ourselves with that family member who's really not a very nice person. And we look at those people and we say, you know what, as I compare with them, I think I have God's approval. How do you compare with Saul of Tarsus? He was the ultimate religious person. He was, maybe if we could put it in our terms, he was the um, Mother Teresa times ten. He was everything a righteous person could be externally. But this same man has something to say to each of us. That's his pedigree. Those are his credentials. But notice what he says in verse 7. He talks about gaining God's approval another way. Verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was to my profit. That's a reference to those credentials in verses 5 and 6. I now consider a loss. The things any normal person would consider most helpful to measuring up to gaining God's approval, I now count as loss which word really means detriment, a disadvantage, a banking term that referred to losing money in business. So Paul is not saying that he chose to simply set aside those things thought to gain God's approval, but they were in fact detrimental to gaining God's approval. And so he announces, renounces them, do you notice there in verse 7, for the sake of Christ. In other words, all the things Saul had done to gain God's favor, he now counted as a hindrance to knowing Christ. I think that's the idea there. And why in the world is that? He clarifies in verse 8, What is more, on top of this, along with this, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul has had a surpassing experience. He speaks of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Did you notice that there? The surpassing greatness. He's comparing something. He's comparing the credentials with knowing Christ. There's a contrast between the two. Here's the key to what Paul is saying, I think, in this entire passage. In gaining God's approval, the issue is not what we do. The issue is who we know. In gaining God's approval, the issue is not what we do. The issue is who we know. 
Paul's religious achievements and credentials hindered him from truly knowing Christ. And so Paul gladly clears the table of his religious trophies and throws them in the basket. Let's picture it this way. You could call it a dream, just call it imagination or whatever, but somebody says to you, today you are going to meet God. Now what you may do in preparation for meeting God is you can assemble all of your religious trophies, all of the good deeds that you have done, all of the things that you think will make you commendable to God because you're going to see Him today. You better get ready. And if you would like, if that's what you think you need, then you better assemble all of your credentials and we'll picture each one of them as a very weighty, heavy trophy. And there's a table there next to a river. It's a deep river. It's a wide river. And you look across and you don't really think a whole lot of it, but you see this table and you begin to lay out there your trophies. I was baptized in a Christian church. Poof. You put your trophy on the table. You think about it for a while and you say, I'm pretty good to my neighbors. In fact, if the neighbors ask, I'm one of the best neighbors in the community. Poof. Trophy number two. And you keep working your way down the table and you lay down your heavy trophies of self righteous ways of the things that you have done that will have to gain God's approval. And as you get them all assembled out there, whatever they are, I pray, I go to church, I give money, you assemble your whole table there, they then say to you, here's a big backpack. You say, what's the deal with the backpack? Well, you've got to take all these with you before God, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for the backpack. And they put the thing on. It's massive. And you put all, they help you get all the trophies in your backpack. And it's heavy. I'm telling you, it's really heavy. But you're stumbling around there and thinking, man, do I got something to show God here. I got this whole thing full of all these weighty trophies to pull out and show God how I can gain his approval and why he should approve of me. And then they tell you what you need to do next. You see on the other side of that river? That's where God is. Jump in. You got to swim. You see, how am I going to swim with all this stuff on my back? I, I, I'm not going to make it. You've got to swim. God's across on the other side of the river, and you've got to swim. There was a day when Saul of Tarsus was, so to speak, standing on the edge of that river with all of his backpack full of the heavy, righteous things that he had done. And Jesus showed up and said, dump the pack. It's going to drown you. What happened, in a sense, was that Jesus pulled up in a boat on that river, that deep, raging, wide river, and he said, dump the pack, and I'll take you across in my boat. And right there, on that road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus took the whole thing, and he dropped it in the mud, and he got into Jesus' boat. 
Did you catch what Saul said? Paul's saying here, I have lost all things. I have lost all things that I may gain Christ. I have left everything here on the banks of the river so that I could get into Jesus' boat and trust him to get me to God. His religious trophy pack was full of mementos of his exploits as a servant of God, but one day he met God in the person of Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, Paul looked at that whole pile of deeds and religious credentials, and he gladly dropped it all in the mud in order that I may know Christ. Because Jesus sits there in his boat on the edge of the river, and he says, you can trust your backpack to get you across the river, or you can get in the boat and trust me. Saul said, I'll trust Christ. All of these things, do you see it, are a detriment. They're not helping me gain the approval of God. They're hindering me from it. They're going to drown me in the water. So I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now wait a minute. Have we lost track of something here? Is it really a bad thing to try to gain God's approval? Is it just about jumping in the boat? Has Paul just given up the whole pursuit of righteousness? I think to the contrary, it is only by knowing Christ that we can gain God's approval, and we do gain God's approval through knowing Christ. Verse 9, I've given this all up. Why? That I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Does that make sense? Not the righteousness of my backpack but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to be found in Him. I want to be joined in faith to Christ. I want to get into His boat so that I might have a righteousness not of my own. A righteousness that is gained not by obeying the law, but a righteousness that is credited to me as a gift from God. It does not come, verse 9, from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, which is both the basis of our salvation and the means by which we embrace that salvation. There is the faith is the truth of who Christ is, and faith is the response of the heart to that truth. So here's the good news. And this might be a really radical way for you to think about God and gaining his approval. But here's the good news. When Jesus' boat pulls up to the river's edge, he says, don't worry about not having a trophy backpack. Don't worry about that. Just get in my boat and I will speak to the Father for you. You will be given a righteousness that comes from me. Don't worry. Here's the good news. You can lay down your own pitiful attempts to measure up to God's standard in a vain attempt to gain His approval, and you can receive a gift of righteous standing before God. Did you catch who's writing this? 
this man breathed out murderous threats against Christians. He was deluded in his zeal and enthusiasm. He could be condemned before the bar of God for killing the very people that God had sought as his own. But Paul says, I'm safe. I'm not safe because of what I can present before God, but I am safe because his righteousness has been given to me. I venture to say there's not one person here who is anywhere as close to as religious and devout as was Saul of Tarsus. There is no one here either who has ever done anything so evil as he did to go after the people of God and to do them harm. But this zealous religious man, this sinful man, says, I give up everything to have the righteousness that comes through God and is by faith. And so now Paul just says, let's just live any old way we want. We've got a righteousness from God, and so we can sin and do anything we please. Is that it? No, his life has been turned upside down. There's a whole new passion, a whole new interest, a whole new love now that fills Paul's heart, and that's described in verse 10. Now I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. I want to know Christ. I'm going to lay down all of these religious deeds and this pursuit of trying to gain God's favor by what I do and who I am. I just want to know Him. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in His resurrected form. And by uniting with the risen Christ through faith, we can experience the dynamic power of His resurrection in our lives. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Saul suffered a few things when he was persecuting Christians. It wasn't convenient. He gave up whatever he needed to give up to do what he thought was right. He hasn't now said, now that I have God's righteousness, I just live any old way that I choose. He says, now I'm willing even to suffer for Christ because I know who he is. And my knowledge of Christ is more important to me than my own safety and my own health. I count everything a loss for the sake of knowing him. I want to become like him even in his death. Because why? Because Jesus had the approval of God. I want that same approval that comes only through Christ, and so I want to be like him even to his, it, unto his death. So that, verse 11, somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's not a new goal for Paul. What has changed is how he goes at that goal. When he was a Jewish rabbi, he wanted to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He wanted to stand approved before God in the next life. Nothing's changed there. It's just how he's going at it. It's not going to be me plopping down my big backpack before God with all my religious trophies. In fact, I'm never even going to make the river. It's the same thing. I want to get on the other side and meet God, but I'm going to get on the other side and meet God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not saying here, I'm not sure if I'm going to attain the resurrection of the dead. I think he's rather saying, I long to. I want to get on the other side of the river. And through Christ I will. I'm in his boat. He's taking me there. I have confidence in that. 
What has changed is that now his hope is not based on human achievement and credential, but upon knowing Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Have you entered at some place on your journey a personal relationship with him? I didn't ask you if you go to a church now and then. I didn't ask you if you're regular there, or if you read the Bible or pray or born into a Christian family. I'm asking, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you come to a personal relationship with him? You know, there are many, many churches in our country who gather in the name of Jesus and talk to you week after week about how to approve, to gain God's approval by your own works. By doing the religious deeds, you will get God to like you. You'll measure up. I'm not asking you any of that, because did you see any of that here? What I think we need to ask in light of this passage is, have you met Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you left your bag of trophies on the side of the river and stepped your foot into his boat to take you across and to give you his righteousness? Has that happened in your life? To do this, you must first of all leave your bag behind. You've got to realize that in yourself, in your own righteousness, you don't measure up. The Bible says, even in the words of Paul to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To use our analogy here, you can't get across the river in your own strength. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've got to dump your pack. And then you must realize that Christ alone can give you a righteous standing before God. And having received his righteousness, you must trust Christ. What that means is this. I'll put it very simply and basically. What it means is that Jesus Christ, as God, came to earth one day. And on one day gave his life to die in the place of the sinner and to bear that penalty. And this same Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and defeating sin. That's what it is to trust Christ, is to know that his boat and his boat alone can take me to the other side. So get this, in the end, it is not deeds of religious activity that gain the approval of God. In fact, it might be in your life that those deeds of religious activities that you think are gaining the approval of God are damning you. They're damning you because they keep you from seeing Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've received his righteousness, then you have the Father's approval. If you have not received by faith the righteousness of Jesus, you don't have the Father's approval. There's only one way there. It's not human effort. It's the work of Christ. So there is the boat docking at the shore, ready to take you to the Father's house. Jesus is the captain. We've got no right to be here. But in his grace, he offers you his righteousness and his way to God, which is the only way.
And we can have the confidence that we'll attain to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, we can then have the confidence that we'll get across the river to the other side and we will stand before God. And it's the righteousness of Jesus who died in our place and rose from the dead that will plead for us. That will gain the approval of God because he approves of his son. Do you have that approval? God does want us to live righteously. He wants us to live our life to know Christ, verse 10. But gaining the approval of God is not ultimately and finally about what you do. It is about who you know. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your word and for the reminder that we have here in your word concerning how it is that we can gain salvation. I pray, God, that these truths would settle down into our hearts. God, how tragic it would be for anyone to walk from here creating in their mind a list of things that they have done to gain your approval. I pray that we would go from here realizing that Christ alone is the answer. That those who can rejoice in that will rejoice in it, and those who need to be confronted by it will accept it and realize that it is their salvation and their hope to know Christ. Father, I pray to this end and just ask that together as a church we might labor to know where we stand, each of us individually, and labor to help those who are lost in their own self-righteousness to find faith in Christ. We know above all that you alone can bring that about, and we ask that you will. May we all know that we have your approval through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.